0: You're listening to The Lodestar, the supply chain and logistics industry's leading source of insight. This podcast was created and produced by MK & Associates and your host, Mike King.
1: It's World Cup time in Qatar, so mahabha to you all. And to totally misquote J.R.R. Tolkien, is hoping that your team is doing half as well as you would like, less than half as well as you deserve. Part two today is all about freight rates, which I'll be looking at in great detail with Zenith's Peter Sand, who has some handy tips on how to renegotiate those liner contracts. But first up, we have a holiday peak season cracker for you, particularly if you like your crackers banging, but your peak season average, bordering on underwhelming. We've got the last mile, TikTok, Shopify, we examine how logistics has gone mainstream, the latest on protests in China, and why rail strikes in the US are such a big threat to supply chains. I'll be catching up with insiders Emma Cosgrove, Brian Bork at Seco Logistics, and the magnificent Greg Hewitt, CEO of DHL Express
0: US. If last year was the mother of all peak seasons, I would call this the modest peak season. I think consumers will continue to buy I think that inventory levels being high have meant that we aren't going to see a huge surge inbound in a rush to the holiday season, but I'm very confident as we head into 2023, those B2B volumes will come back, consumers will continue to buy, and we're in a good position to serve the global economy. Hello, I'm Mike King. Welcome
1: to the Lodestar Podcast. Just in case you didn't know, our podcasts are available on uh, all reputable, and I would say that, wouldn't I, platforms and on thelodestar.com. Right, let's get cracking. Today, I'm delighted to say I'm joined from the States by a co-host who is making her first appearance on this podcast. And I'm sure many of you know her from her excellent copy and very relatable social media posts. She's currently the senior reporter covering... Logistics at Insider, and has previously covered supply chains and technology for Supply Chain Dive and Ag AgFunder News. Emma Cosgrove, welcome to the Loadstar podcast.
2: Hello, thanks for having me, Mike.
1: You're very welcome. Emma, I just want to explain the background to Insider a little bit, because that will help our listeners understand where you're coming from when we're discussing some of the things that are affecting our world. Insider takes a very particular approach to supply chains because your readers are not necessarily the industry insiders that would normally listen to this podcast or read the Lodestar or read Supply Chain Dive, where you used to write. Can you explain for our listeners how you go about writing about supply chains for people who might not necessarily understand at first why supply chains are important to them or the economy or their business?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's been... An interesting journey over the last two years of uh, figuring out how to do this. But I'm really grateful for the experience because, I mean, as I'm sure all your listeners know, when you rock up to your family holiday and supply chains are in the news, you can't use all of the industry jargon to explain what's going on. No one will understand what you're saying. So it's a lot about story selection for me. We think of our audience as really smart, really engaged in the world, but relatively excuse skews young. So business-minded, but maybe in their 30s, less 40s and 50s. And so for me, that means I try and check two boxes with every story I pick. I want the industry audience that I cultivated at Supply Chain Dive that I know on social media to find value in what I write. So that's really solid reporting, new information, good strategy, good analysis. And then the other thing is I want generalists off the street to be able to engage with it, to understand what I'm saying, and maybe find it fascinating and want to learn more And that's about what words I use. So, as you know, Mike, you've written for us. It is such an interesting experience to try and figure out how to translate even words like freight. I try not to use because what is freight? (laughs) What is the difference between like people see the words cargo and freight and they, they, you know, they don't know are they synonyms? So, um, I remember once I got a really rude email from someone criticizing me for using the word stuff in a story. Because I was explaining the inventory to sales ratio and how in 2021 it was way out of whack. And that that's part of the reason that supply chains were in turmoil. We, had, we bought so much stuff that the system built to handle it couldn't handle it. And I'm proud of using the word stuff. I think it's helpful. I think it helps people access what, what I'm talking about. But it has been a journey to figure out how to do that.
1: That's why I thought it'd be so interesting to have you on, actually, because there is this weird sort of crossover that we haven't seen throughout my career because of COVID, I would suggest. I've used the phrase before, but I think it's still got some relevance. I think during COVID, the supply chain sort of went from backroom to boardroom. Did this make your job easier? And do you agree with that? that? Is that what happened? We've sort of gone mainstream as an industry.
2: Oh, yeah, definitely. It was happening before we were starting at Supply Chain Dive. I was reporting on a lot of first-time CSCOs. The Chief Supply Chain Officer, was becoming a more common uh, position. But in the last two or three years, it's definitely shifted, and in some ways, it makes my job easier because I remember four years ago, emailing a company's communications people, being like, "I want to talk about your last mile of delivery," and the PR people would be like, "What? What? What are you talking about?" <laughs> So so there's a lot more fluency out there. I think companies are a lot more interested in touting their uh, supply chain skills. On the other hand, supply chains move markets now, whereas they didn't used to. I had a story in January about Shopify's fulfillment plans, which I I think we might talk about later, but that story moved their stock 12% in one day. And that was a surprise to me. I didn't know that was going to happen, but Markets are so attuned to supply chain disruptions at this point that they're actually more likely to overreact than underreact, which is just a fascinating new dynamic.
1: That is very new, yeah. I mean, one of the things that really struck me throughout the COVID pandemic and how that affected the global supply chain, global trade, and our industry as well, for those of us covering it, is that we saw so much more interest in it, but we've also seen a lot of new entrants. Was this purely COVID? You've been covering this. Was this purely COVID or was this going to happen anyway? You mentioned Shopify there. They're not the only ones, are they?
2: No, yeah. If we're talking about tech folks getting into logistics or logistics-ish, TikTok has just started talking about it. And I don't think it's COVID. There is plenty of fulfillment capacity. And that's what they're mostly looking at is e-com fulfillment and a little bit of upstream importing. Shopify is working with Flexport on sort of offering smaller e-commerce sellers, more freight services and how to import stuff better. Um, and that is COVID because small players had a hell of a time getting anything into the country in the US. The big players had plenty of trouble. Small players found it impossible. And so a lot of folks with venture funding see an opportunity in putting all the small sellers together and trying to find a way to to make money that way. And so that is a reaction of COVID. I think the Shopify is creating its own fulfillment network. TikTok is looking at doing the same. And I don't think that's necessarily about COVID. I think that's more about control. And I think it's a little bit about Amazon and how distracting Amazon's massive logistics engine is and how you look at that business and you think, well, should I do that? So not all of these decisions have come together in a very cohesive, smart way, but they are sort of lurching in the same direction, which is how much control do we need? It looks like we need some kind of control. Let's figure out what that is.
1: Well, you mentioned Amazon there. We've seen big container lines invest in these huge profits in in their logistics, in freighters. Is this a, a business sector that the likes of TikTok or other companies out there will continue to find attractive?
2: Yeah, I mean, the tech companies are nowhere near close. They're not even, not even 2% of the way toward when Amazon is built and Amazon hasn't built the container. So there's, there's a long way to go there. A lot of logistics players, big European ones especially, but there are also a few in the U.S., are looking to have like a more cohesive, they always say end-to-end service that they're building. And I think that is a trend we're going to see for decades to come. Whether or not it resonates with their customers, I think kind of remains to be seen from my personal view. And I've also heard some rumblings about how old school these companies are. If you wanna work with new customers, like modern customers, you need to be nimble. You need to have shorter RFP processes. You need to have short onboarding. You need to make it easy for customers and hundreds of year old companies that are global and massive, not been their strong suit. I think some customer experience will be really important there. And I'm excited to see who actually wins it's going to take a long time. Like UPS is using that same language. Flexport is using that same language. We want to be everything to everyone. We want to be like a one-stop shop for logistics from point of origin to end consumer. We'll see who actually does it.
1: Yeah, Mezq's another one. Who's going to win this battle? Or maybe there's going to be more than one winner and quite a lot of losers. Just as we move back, everyone's saying the new normal. I don't know. I'm just going to say it's looking slightly less carnage riven than it has been over the last two years when I look at global trade and global supply chains, although we'll come back to some of the bottlenecks we're seeing, certainly in China, a bit later on in this podcast. But do you think that as we get to something more normal or less chaotic, that there'll be less focus, say, certainly from journalists in the mainstream like yourself, but also perhaps from the stock markets on our industry, or will it remain to the forefront of people's minds and business leaders' minds as we move forward?
2: I think it's going to stick around for a while. I'm not going to say forever, but something really interesting happened to me recently that I think really illustrates this point. I wrote a story about dog food and how dog food is one of the fastest adopted items on, online. People buy it online more than almost anything else. It's going to be bought more online than in stores very soon, 2025, I think. In the U.S. at least, which is a really fast conversion rate compared to other products. And all the implications of that logistically are really interesting to me. But a local news station in Washington, D.C. wanted me to come on and talk about it. And it was like six o'clock in the morning. It was quite hazy. And I'm watching the feed right before I start talking to the anchor. And it says dog food crisis. And I was, wait, (laughs) that's not what I said at all. So I had to like very quickly pivot. I think the supply chain crisis is quite burned in people's memories. And I've written a few stories about like what it looks like when it ends, because people don't really understand (laughs) when this is going to be over. So yeah, I don't think we're back to normal, but I also think it's just going to live in people's minds for a while. And when you don't hear about it anymore, might be the time we know it is back to normal.
1: All very true, Emma. Certainly in the UK, we're, uh, we've definitely had enough stories, I would say, about empty shelves and, and a few random people waiting in queues outside supermarkets. Someone else who would rather see some more positive stories on our industry is uh, my next guest, actually, who I will be discussing uh, the 2022 peak season with and also looking forward to 2023. It's Greg Hewitt, who's the CEO of DHL Express US. Hello, Greg. How are you? I'm great. Hello, Mike. Thanks for having me today. Greg, we've heard so much on previous episodes of this podcast about the lack of a shipping peak season, and we haven't really seen much of a surge in air cargo rates either. How would you uh, say your experience has been this year? As Express had its own pre-holiday rush? And I guess if so, Is it one that compares to 2021 or is it more of a pre-pandemic affair?
0: Well, I think we're coming off of a record year. Last year in 2021, we saw tremendous growth, tremendous volume. I think if you look back, there were challenges with the supply chain in air and ocean. And so there was a heavy leaning on fixed express networks like we operated DHL. So we saw a huge surge last year that we contended with and dealt with. In fact, it was one where we had to put caps in it, times if you remember, where we had to manage that volume. So when you do the comparable year over year, that was a really big peak. This one, I would say, is a little bit more modest. We haven't seen the early run-up that we saw last year. So the peak, we think, is coming a little bit later. The peak is not going to be as big a surge, we don't think, as we've seen historically. When I look at it, Mike, what we're seeing is, for me in the U.S., with a strong U.S. dollar, U.S. consumers are still buying goods online. They're buying from Europe and they're buying from Asia. So we're still seeing good delivery volume into the U.S. We see a little bit of a depression on that e-commerce volume going outbound because U.S. products are more expensive globally. I think that's normal. I think that plays into the, the idea of inflation, strong US dollar, maybe a bit of that word of recession. On the flip side, the other area that I think we're seeing a change year over year is in the the business to business, some of your traditional movement of goods. I think because of some of the challenges last year with the supply chain, many companies wanted to hedge and make sure they were protected this year. They ordered and moved things earlier in the year took on heavier and higher inventories, landed here in the U.S., and now as they go into peak, I think with the idea of recessions and inflation and such, they've got a lot of inventory here already, so we're not going to see as much flowing in. We're certainly seeing that on what is historically our busiest trade lane, the Asia inbound to the U.S. That has definitely softened in Q3 and into Q4. So in
1: terms of that, you had an earlier bulge. I'm Imagine it moving through a pipe, this sort of one of those cartoon pipes, this big big thing trying to get through a small pipe. Where would it be now then? You've got a lot of inventory and warehouses, you say, but it's soft on the inbound element. As we're, just for our listeners, as we're talking just ahead of Thanksgiving, where are you up to now in, in terms
0: of that last element of this peak season? Well, I look at our peak, our peak historically runs 40 to 45% above our normal Shipping volumes this year, it's not going to be that high. It'll probably be in the twenties, maybe the mid twenties to thirty at most. That puts it relatively flat year over year because last year was such a big peak. Where normally in peak season you see that as that taking that next step up and establishing kind of the the plateau for the next year. This year it's going to be very flat, maybe slightly down, slightly up here in the United States as we head from Thanksgiving and, and into the holiday season.
1: Greg, is, is this a, a retailer story particularly? I mean, how is the rest of the business doing and how does it vary B2B versus B2C? And I'm thinking specifically here, there's been a lot of stories around a drop-off in e-commerce this year. I'm just wondering how that's affected DHL Express.
0: Well, we haven't seen that same dramatic drop-off. I, I would say our feeling and our belief and what we're seeing is Consumers are still going to buy. They are still going to buy for the holiday season. And as such, it's more a play on which trade lanes are those things moving. As I suggested, with a strong U.S. dollar, Americans are leveraging that, e-commerce buyers and buying goods from Europe and from Asia and bringing them in for their gift. We have seen it soften a little on U.S. e-commerce going outbound because the products are more expensive. And my belief would be when I think of it globally, people are just buying a little more local in that case. So B2C and e-commerce, I think, is still stable. There's still demand there. The area we've seen the drop-off for a peak, particularly on the Asia inbound to the US lane, is more in the B2B segment, where I do believe companies bought early, brought inventory in earlier in the year, didn't want to get put in the position they were in last year where there was a capacity shortage around peak. And so now they're, with a recession in play, with inflation high, I think people have got a lot of inventory. And now they're working to move through that inventory here in peak. So it means a little less in international shipping for us and why I would call it a more modest peak.
1: And those outbound lanes that you mentioned where there hasn't been such strength, partly due to that strong US dollar, where are you particularly seeing that? Is this the transatlantic, is this back to Asia? Is it down to South America? Where is that particularly apparent to you?
0: Well, traditionally the strongest lanes for purchasing US products for us on the e-commerce world would be the UK, Europe, Australia, and Canada. Those are the, traditionally the strongholds of people buying uh, US goods. Not Middle East, Africa, Asia, they're, they're buying as well, but the others are the big ones. All of those are just slightly down, and I play that up to a much stronger U.S. dollar, particularly in Europe, where the euro has almost fallen to parity with the U.S. dollar. I think it's just a lot more expensive to buy U.S., and so we've seen a little bit of a decline there. I think it's very expensive to come to the U.S. at the moment, certainly if you're in the U.K. with
1: our Brexit pound. I digress. We talk a lot on this podcast about different supply chain bottlenecks. From an express point of view, particularly in the U.S., we hear about labor shortages and where that labor market is. Is that a bottleneck for you at the
0: moment? And is this something that you expect or you're catering for as we look forward to next year? It's true, Mike. You hear a lot about the concerns about being able to attract and keep talent and labor shortages. I think because we were an essential service and kept delivering all the way through the pandemic, we didn't face a situation where people weren't working, we are working on and up. We had steady work and steady growth. In fact, coming through the pandemic, two of our biggest years in 2020 and 2021, where we were really able to step up. For me this year, what I was able to do with the pandemic kind of lessening was really reinvest in our people through our Certified International Specialist Program, put a lot of training in, really build up the skill of the people that we brought on. And now with the volume not escalating, It means we've got a strong, stable workforce. I think we have faced the inflationary pressures that many people have found and have had to adjust wages up, which I think has helped keep our people. And then we've invested heavily in our culture. We're very proud of the fact that we've been recognized as a great place to work by Fortune Magazine and the Great Place to Work organization. I think all of those things have meant that we've got a strong, stable workforce and with not facing as big a peak as we've seen in prior years, we don't have that challenge of trying to go out and very quickly bring on a lot of seasonal staff that sometimes we face. So I'm not facing that challenge in and now, but I don't want to say that fighting to keep and retain and invest in your people is critical. And that's where having a modest peak where we aren't seeing the huge spike in volume, it has meant that we've been able to keep our people In place, train them up and really go through this season. And I think what I don't want to do is minimize the importance of attracting, retaining, and training great people because if you lose them, it is difficult to find new people to come in. And we've been able to have stability in our workforce and we'll have that as we head into 2023.
1: I want to look at your 2023 pricing in a moment, but just to finish off 2022, last year, John Pearson, CEO of DHL Express, speaking to me on the Lodestar podcast. We were talking in the buildup to that peak season, that holiday season, and he, he called it the mother of all peak seasons. What would you call it this year?
0: If last year was the mother of all peak seasons, I would call this the modest peak season. I think consumers will continue to buy. I think that inventory levels being high have meant that we aren't going to see a huge surge inbound in a rush to the holiday season. But I'm very confident as we head into 2023, those B2B volumes will come back. Consumers will continue to buy. And we're in a good position to serve the global economy.
1: Thanks, Greg. That's very, very interesting. Now, you guys released some information about your rates in 2023. Your average rate increase for US account holders is seven point. which is above FedEx and UPS rate increases. Do you think firstly, that that will be accepted by the market? And secondly, what's your reasoning for this increase given that economies, including the US are facing quite a few headwinds and you also saw a drop in time definite international and domestic volumes in the first half of 2022.
0: Yeah, Mike, we're confident that the increase that we're bringing to market is fair. It's reasonable and in line with how overall cost has risen with inflation here in the United States. I think the inflation rate right now in the US is 8.2%. We've seen a little bit higher than that inflation rate in our operation as we look to retain and invest heavily in our frontline employees. So I think the 7.9% I back up with being it's a fair increase given how our cost structure has evolved coming through the pandemic. And it's what we need to do in order to continue to invest in our business, both our people and our infrastructure, and to commit to the great quality service that we're known for in an international market. Now, what I will say is when you compare that to the competition, it's always good to look at the details. I think our two biggest competitors here in the U.S., our very large businesses, they have a headline GPI that's blended across many weight breaks and many products. I think if you look into theirs, you may see that it varies depending on the product, the lane, and the weight break. Where for us, ours is a little bit more narrow and soap, a little bit more predictable, and we think people will be able to plan for it and know that uh, given our robust international services and the fact that we Our capabilities and connections to more countries around the world are in place. They'll be able to accept that increase and understand it and build it into their pricing as they go to market in 2023.
1: Where have you seen those costs that you mentioned there? Where have they been increasing most in terms of your network that justifies this increase?
0: The largest increases in costs would be around uh, the labor side of, of things. And that we've needed to increase wages of our frontline employees. To make sure that they can keep up with the inflation rate that they're seeing in the United States.
1: Very much a global story on inflation and it's causing a lot of issues for many laborers around the world. Finally, Greg, what else is new at DHL Express? Have you got an investment plan? Are you making any capacity cuts? Any new innovations you can tell us about?
0: Well, I think the big thing, Mike, is no cuts. And I think that's what's important in terms of when you look at pricing and quality and service, which we know our customers expect and need and have come to count on us through the pandemic and coming out of it, we need to continue to invest. So we've got two big, I would say, infrastructure investments that are very relevant for peak. One, we've been able to enable a day sort operation in our Cincinnati super head here in the United States. That gives us increased capacity, nine additional flights a day that allow us to take on heavier volume as it comes into the United States and out for delivery we also opened a new hub in Atlanta that will allow for more markets from Europe and Asia to go direct into Atlanta putting them closer to the southeast service area when you think of that Texas uh the Carolinas Tennessee Georgia those markets now will have direct service I think the other thing we've seen is we're on a path for a path of sustainability and zero emissions by 2050. We continue to invest heavily in green infrastructure. Finally, I I had my Palo Alto facility go green this week with the arrival of, I believe it was 65 new electric vehicles there. That investment will continue as we push to green the fleet and green our facilities. And finally, I mentioned to you a big investment this year in our people, We really stepped up our training, learning, and development under certified international specialists and certified international management programs to make sure that all of the people that we had brought on during the pandemic have all of the skills, the background, and the the indoctrination into the DHL culture that allows us to speak a common language of international service quality in 220 countries and territories around the world. Greg
1: Hewitt, CEO of DHL Express US. Thanks for joining me today on the Loadstar podcast. It's my Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Bye. Emma, we heard there that DHL has had to put a lot of money into ensuring it has the right amount of labor. You've been looking at how US last mile contractors are coping with inflation. You're seeing a lot of bankruptcies. Are labor costs a factor in them?
2: Yeah, a huge factor. In the US, both Amazon and FedEx run on contract labor. So small businesses that cover finite territories all over the country. FedEx has 6,000 of them. So I talk to as many as I can. And labor is a massive factor. It's gone up a ton just as volume has come down, which is just a one-two punch for a really small business. But then it's also trucks are more expensive. Uh, Fuel got really expensive earlier this year. So yeah, it's costs across the board. And they're also all competing with each other for the same labor, which just makes it particularly difficult. So, yeah, that's a factor. It's going to be a factor. And ironically, that's kind of the factor that seems to be propping up peak season as well, because even though the the economic sort of doomism has set in, people have money in their pocket. Wages, unemployment is still quite low. Wages are still quite high very early indications for holiday season. I'm not going to make predictions, but it, it, from my sources, it's seeming like it's it's not a disaster scenario whatsoever. It's, it's flat to slightly up.
1: That echoes Greg's point as well. But Obviously, you're covering the US and we're talking about that US market, but anyone listening in now would appreciate that that resonates just as well in Europe and many other parts of the world where we've got these inflationary problems and we've got the cost of labor is increasing, but we have got a cost of living crisis. So yes, We'll see how that develops. But one of the trends that you've also been covering, Emma, is retailers. Many of them are bringing their logistics in-house, especially on that last mile. What's driving this?
2: Yeah, that's true. It's been a trend probably for the last year to 18 months. And a couple of different things are driving it. But I'll give out a few names that is probably helpful. We've seen American Eagle build out its own carrier via acquisition. Home Depot is talking about using gig providers and doing a lot more of its own middle mile. Macy's is talking about doing a similar scenario. So we're seeing it a lot more, but there's a a really wide spectrum here. And I think what's interesting about this trend is that it's getting into the mid tier. So we're very used to Walmart, Target, Amazon doing a ton of their own logistics, their own trucking. Target has had uh, a sort of store-based fulfillment strategy since before the pandemic they were really bullish on packing orders in stores and then and sending them on from there and now they're building their own sortation centers which is usually the role of a parcel carrier so that line is moving with the really big carriers what's new is that these are mid-tier carriers maybe not Home Depot that's a big guy but Macy's American Eagle these are mid-tier which is not where you would usually expect insourcing and i think the Sort of rising rates from the carriers out there is one thing. E-commerce logistics is always shifting, but it, it's a tough time right now for anyone with really light packages. They're only, people don't love the under one pound packages. They don't carry a good premium. So the big carriers have been picky. They've been more selective about which customers they want. And I think some retailers are seeing that writing on the wall and, and seeing that it, with technology now, they can stitch together a network of third-party players. Whether or not that's going to perform as well, whether or not other customers, American Eagle is actually looking to have customers of its own, not just serve itself. So that's an open question as to whether like competitive retailers would want to get in on that game. So it's a really interesting trend and I'm I'm excited to watch it grow, but it's early. It's early days.
1: Thanks, Emma. I just want to switch across the Pacific, if I may. The big story now, as we're talking right, just as November turns to December is China which is not somewhere we normally see a lot of political protests, but that has all changed in the last week or so. And we're seeing some very brave people there risking everything as they push back against President Xi's zero COVID policy as, as infection spread around the country. We've examined how China's lockdowns have disrupted supply chains in the past on this podcast. Apple's latest iPhone 14 deliveries were already late due to lockdowns. And now we're seeing these terrible images of workers at Foxconn's plant in Zhengzhou in Henan province, being beaten by police for protesting over working conditions and COVID restrictions, which is absolutely awful. We'll see how this plays out, but people are already saying these revolts are the biggest anti-communist party demonstrations since Tiananmen Square in 1989. So it's potentially very disruptive and hopefully it doesn't end the same way as Tiananmen Square. The latest we have for our listeners from the Low Star comes via Sam Whelan reporting from Asia, who spoke to Shanghai-based Thomas Gronin, who's head of Greater China at Fibs Logistics. And he told the Low Star that most of the protests are very local actions, but lockdowns are still having a big impact in Beijing, in Wuhan, in Chongqing, and there's work from home recommendations in Shenzhen. There's also a lot of local access obstacles in Suzhou, Guangzhou, Tianjin, and a host of other cities. Some of these are truck driver testing requirements. Some of these are roadblocks. It varies. So this is something we'll be tracking closely at the loadstar.com in the coming days and weeks. But how is this impacting supply chains or adding to logistics risk for U.S. companies or people who rely on products being shipped efficiently from China?
2: Yeah, you just said it varies And I feel like that's the key element there. And honestly, what's equally important to how it affects supply chains, human rights aside, by the way, because it's really hard to have a conversation about keeping supply chains flowing and and American businesses doing well amidst this human rights crisis. But I'll do it. The bigger factor, I think, is how this affects people's behavior. Retailers need to decide whether or not goods are going to flow. It's going to come when they order them. A vertically integrated supply chain like Apple's is is kind of a an outlier. Most retailers don't have that sort of direct relationship between their Chinese suppliers. So, whether or not they feel the need to order goods with long lead times, it's going to keep the warehouse real estate market inflated. It's going to keep prices low if goods are arriving at the wrong time, like they were last year and and this year. It, it's going to keep retailers on the back foot essentially if they need to get out ahead of some perceived disruption that may or may not come. We were talking earlier about a return to normal and return to normal meant that you had some control over your lead times. They were kind of in your hands. You could do things to speed things up, receipt of products. You could design them faster. You could work with different suppliers. Since 2020, it's really not felt like that was a choice. It really felt like that was a matter of harnessing chaos. It felt like we were headed back just slightly toward that normal where you have some control, where you get to decide how quickly your goods are going to arrive and the costs are sort of the go along with that decision in a logical way. If this disruption continues, I think the decision making will continue to be really difficult. And that means that inventories will stay out of whack. And I don't know what it's going to do to freight rates, but it's just this disruption that keeps people on alert rather than in control.
1: Yeah you, you do make a very good point there, Emma, about how difficult it is to talk about this p- supply chain disruptions when we're talking about people risking their lives to, to protest against COVID lockdowns. Human rights is a, is a big issue in China. As it is, we're talking during the middle of the World Cup, and I'm watching the football, but at the same time, these stadiums have been built on the bones of immigrant workers, so it's a difficult dilemma. We can come back to that, but I rather more prosaically would like to swing back to the U.S. again and look at some of the other risks and also opportunities from a slightly different perspective. And I'd like to welcome Brian Bork, who's the newly appointed Global Chief Commercial Officer at Seco Logistics. Hello, Brian. Hey, Mike. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. I'm good. I'm good. Brian, I'm just going to get straight to this. How's your fourth quarter been? We've just been hearing there about how things are playing out on that last mile and then what the e-commerce situation is like, but how's it been for you guys as 3PLs, as forwarders managing all that cargo? Are you seeing a slowdown now as we talk sort of late November or are you still seeing a bit of that holiday season demand, keeping things busy?
3: As far as the, the fourth quarter in Q4 and demand, and is there a deceleration or a decrease It's hard to describe it as a downturn only because the past two and a half to three years have seen such record-breaking demand for goods all around the world with bottlenecks in every mode and both supply and demand shocks, which really threw out forecasts and long-term planning out the window. I think what we're seeing now is, is not so much of a downturn as, as simply reverting to previous trend line. So if you look at comparisons to 2019, there are some ports that are actually down in volume versus the same time in 2019, but I think you see other ports that are up since 2019. And so when it comes to actually uh, goods coming into countries or regions like Europe or North America, there definitely is a downward trend as a lot of companies, both retailers and manufacturers are sitting on more inventory than they had one or two years ago. But when it comes to e-commerce demand, we're not seeing huge spikes year over year like we've seen over the past couple of years, but we're not seeing a a complete collapse either. So it really depends on the commodity. I mean, you can only buy so many grills and exercise bikes for your home, right? But when it comes to regular of fast-moving consumer goods and especially some commodities like pet supplies that we're seeing still kind of a robust demand. So we fully expect that inventories will be drawn down during Q4. Some commodities will do much better than others. And then ultimately, as we set ourselves up for next year, post-Lunar New Year, the, the purchase orders will begin again. The real question is how strong and how much? But ultimately, this is a, a natural cycle of the what what you would call the uh, the reverse bullwhip effect, right? Where for so long companies have been really trying to get product in and inventory levels to match accelerated demand. Well, now that kind of demand is returning back to the trend line from before the pandemic, there's going to be some, some corrections that occur all around the world as it relates to inventory levels. But this is not a surprise. We've seen this coming in, in, the, in the bookings and the POs and the reductions and forecasts, but ultimately at the end of the day, some commodities are, are still robust, some industries are doing well, others are needing to draw down their inventory before they can start ordering again. But you know, consumer demand uh, seems to be on pace with last year. Now, everyone likes to see growth, but ultimately we're not seeing a lot of backwards numbers or redu- serious reductions, uh, except for a few specific commodities.
1: Looking at the U.S., throughout 2022, we've had ongoing negotiations between the ILWU union and the port owners, the PMA, over those West Coast dock worker agreements. But we we now also have this new element of risk, which is a potential rail worker union strike. How are you looking at these risk elements and what are you advising your customers?
3: Well, you put it in a really good context there. It's risk. And the risk levels across all global supply chains have been elevated for the past three years. Uh, There's been increased complexity, ambiguity, volatility, uncertainty. We call it the the VUCA factor. And that we've seen that kind of red flags across the supply chain in multiple areas. But ultimately, you're absolutely right. In the United States today, there are some potential labor actions that are uh, really adding risk to supply chains for U.S. companies. And And ultimately, even though a lot of attention was paid towards the negotiations with the West Coast ports and Longshoremen Union, it really today and over the past couple of weeks, we've seen an increased probability of labor action with the rail workers and the impacts there could actually be much more significant. So that's definitely something that we're looking at a lot more closely. We all knew that the issues would Be postponed until after the midterm elections. Now that the midterm elections are done, the probability of some kind of labor action does go up. So it's definitely something to be watching out for on the Lodestar website over the next couple of weeks as the news continues to evolve and develop
1: in real time. And of course, that's something that we'll be continuing to cover. Brian, finally, let's look at 2023. How's things looking from your point of view in terms of demand, in terms of freight rates? We've got these economic downturns around the world. Where does all this bottom out? When do things pick up? Will U.S. consumers and a strong dollar be leading the market charge, do you think?
3: Obviously, in the United States, uh, a big percentage of our economy is driven by the consumer economy. And so all eyes are on retail numbers and e-commerce numbers. We also have clients in in other sectors, including aerospace, medical, high-tech trade shows. And we're seeing a lot of these industries actually uh, surging in demand right now. On the manufacturing side, especially on the high-tech side, when it comes to hardware, physical assets, trade shows are back, for example. These are industries that are doing well, where demand is, is strong, and we're seeing that continue on into next year. The order books for airplanes, for example, are starting to become more robust as more people fly. So these sectors, we're, we're definitely seeing strength and, and vitality heading into next year, obviously with a lot of retailers that are sitting on more inventory than they had in, you know, last year, or perhaps even inventory that was set for last season, but that arrived late due to congestion. There's a lot of inventory that needs to be drawn down first before those POs uh, start to be issued again. And so all eyes are on consumer demand. It's definitely being impacted by a, a lot of factors, including interest rates, inflation, And ultimately, if you look at things like credit card debt for households, there's a number of factors and indices that we're watching to see how this Q4 will go. But ultimately, it's not across the board. We're definitely seeing some categories doing very well, other categories definitely slowing down. And so it's just watching how these different commodities do this holiday season will definitely impact how they restun. Uh, for next year, so I think some categories will be restocking a lot earlier in the year, uh, and really planning around the Lunar New Year, while other commodities will be probably looking for uh, later in the year uh, in order to uh, really re- restock their inventories because they're just sitting on too much
1: right now. Brian Bork, thank you for joining me on the Loadstar Podcast, and best wishes for everyone on the Lodestar in your new position following your promotion to Global Chief Commercial Officer at Seaco Logistics.
3: I really appreciate it, Mike, and look forward to seeing the uh, Lodestar team at a future event next year.
1: I'm sure we'll be at a pub near you at some point soon. Thanks very much, Brian. Thank you, Mike. Emma, Brian is rather optimistic about 2023, as you heard, despite the many economic challenges out there right now. Where do you see the big stories in the last mile and logistics in 2023? What will you be keeping a sharp eye on?
2: So I'm watching a few things. One of them is, is labor. There's a lot more flexible labor. Some people take issue with the word gig labor, but it, it sort of looks and smells like gig labor getting into the last mile. And I think that's because there's so much volatility right now that flexible capacity is what these carriers need. Their overhead is too high, <laughs> especially for some of the big carriers. They need to control their costs a lot right now because the volume has been so volatile and because the forecast for 2023 is so murky. Things like people delivering parcel routes in their own cars, you know, signing up for one day's work, but not necessarily working tomorrow without a fixed schedule. That's what I mean there. That's growing a lot. In fact, it's what enables those retailers we were talking about from using their stores like fulfillment centers. If you have 100 deliveries within a 10 mile radius, you can put them all in somebody's van and you're done, which is a really new way of thinking about it. So I'm watching that really closely because it has a massive effect on this sort of U.S. workforce, gig labor is growing across all industries. And I find that shift fascinating. And then the other thing that I'll say is something that that Brian has actually hammered into me lately, which is as air cargo rates come down, I mean, we were talking about China opening up when we were, had this conversation. So who knows now? But if more passenger flights end up coming in and out of China, then the dynamics for cross-border e-commerce are going to change Completely, There are a lot of players, talking. being one of them, like we mentioned before, that have a vested interest in speeding up parcel service from China to the U.S. Alibaba has been talking about getting down to 72 hours for years. If that happens, then Chinese retailers will be able to compete on speed with U.S. retailers, which is a fascinating and mind-blowing possibility. And that's something I keep a pretty close eye on.
1: A very good point, Emma. Yeah, I mean, I was hearing just this, this week, though, possibly as a result of all these, these protests and, and the lockdowns that we're, we're seeing a drop-off into Europe of by some Chinese carriers of freight movements. Whether that carries on, we, we don't know. I'm certainly keeping an eye on Chinese New Year next year. i wondering if that gives its normal spike that we would see in freight markets. That's going to be very interesting. Emma, is there anything outside of our industry that you're hoping might improve in 2023?
2: Something I'm starting to pay more attention to is all of the procurement promises that companies made in 2020 for various reasons. Human rights is one. I was paying really close attention to what was going on in Xinjiang before uh, 2021 and I got busy with other crises. But it's such an important place to pay attention to and how the main products that come out of that region, like cotton and tomatoes, have made it into supply chains. So that's something I really want to keep an eye on again, now that hopefully we'll see some sort of normalization. And that speaks to human rights issues in supply chains all over the place. There's uh, There are lots of products that I used to keep a really close eye on, like palm oil is one of them. We've been talking about the labor in Qatar. There are labor issues all over the world that I feel like have been on the back burner when we've just been trying to get things to our doors. So I need to dive back into those. And the other thing I've been paying attention to is in the US and I think in Europe as well, there was quite a push in 2020 after the death of George Floyd to have more diversified procurement operations. So companies promised to, at least US companies promised to purchase, you know, 10%, 20%, something, some percentage of their goods from black-owned businesses. Retailers now have still have black-owned sections of their websites where you can go and buy from black-owned vendors. There's some really interesting entrepreneurship going on in that space, but also there were hard promises made and There have been a lot of distractions. So I am looking into whether or not those promises were kept and what industry needs to do to make those promises easier to keep. Because as your listeners will know, procurement is just vastly complex and a a social promise becomes a back office problem very quickly. And it's an important one to solve. And, you know, solving for diversity in supply chains could really help us solve for human rights in supply chains. It it could that technology is all the same. I'm looking forward to looking into more of that.
1: I can only echo those sentiments. A more diversified supply chain geographically and in in terms of the ways that you've just explained would be fantastic. I would also personally like a little bit less greenwashing. Please stop sending me those press releases. In the next episode, the Lodestar podcast out in the second week of December, I will be joined by the Lodestar's Mike Wackett. Alex Lane and Gavin Van Moll. And we'll be looking at winners and losers of 2022. And we'll be looking at opportunities and challenges in 2023. And I'm sure we'll be also updating you on what exactly is happening in China and how that will affect your business. Next up, we have Zenith's chief analyst, Peter Sand, discussing everything to do with ocean container, rate rates, where the market's going and how to manage your contracts. In the meantime, Emma Cosgrove, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining me today on the Loadstar podcast.
4: Thank you.
1: Hello, and welcome to part two of this episode of the Lodestar podcast, where we will be zooming into what's happening to freight rates at the moment and next year. And to do this, I'd like to welcome once more Zenita Chief Analyst, Peter Sand. Hello, Peter. How are you?
4: I'm delighted to be back once again in your good company, Mike.
1: Peter, first, just looking at air cargo before we turn to shipping. According to TAC Index, there's little sign in November of a last-minute surge in demand. In fact, latest analysis suggests that the market remains, and I'm quoting here, in the doldrums, rates on key routes from Asia to Europe have been falling all year. And rates from Vietnam, both to the U.S. and to Europe, are now down 60% year on year. Part of this is obviously lower demand. Part of this is shipping log jams are easing. Prices have tumbled. And cargo that can sail is now being shipped rather than flown. Peter, can you just explain how those downturns in rates, how that's been reflected on the main shipping lanes at the moment these last few months?
4: It's running dry at the moment. We are definitely seeing demand falling dramatically, especially in, in North America. And we see that reflected in spot trade rates on some of the key trades, the Trans-Pacific trade lane. I mean, as much as it has fallen already, it still fell 15% in the, the last month. We now quote a far East to U.S. West Coast spot market, just shy of $1,900 to the West Coast with the uh, increasing difference to the U.S. East Coast where we see 4,300 now down 25% from a month ago. So very much an impact on the spot market rates for ocean shipping into to North America. But most dramatically, we have seen the, um, the trade lanes from Far East into South America, East Coast falling 43% over the past month. And we have seen a 39% drop on the Far East to North Europe trade lane finding itself right now around just shy of three thousand dollars so it's coming down to something that looked like pre-pandemic levels still not there quite yet as we see it there on the far east to to us west coast that is actually right back at where it once was
1: just as we're looking at christmas and new year lodestar.com has been reporting on a number of blanks that, that carriers have already announced uh are you expecting this to continue and then possibly some GRIs for Chinese New Year, general, general rate increases? Because Chinese New Year, of course, this year starts early. It starts on January 2022, so people are already preparing for it now, even in late November.
4: Seasonality is definitely the wild card for me in the coming year. As doom and gloom, the market may appear, there will always be seasonality around Chinese Lunar New Year coming around in January 22nd. And of course, also come what may during the traditional peak in the third quarter. But I mean, one of the conspiracies that, that, I, that I love to listen to uh, these days while having a, a great laugh about it is the fact that, that people think to imagine those carriers still sitting in the box club, smoking their big fat cigars and just manipulating the market full stop. But if there's anything that we should take away from lessons learned, not only during COVID years, but also before that, is that you need an absolute emergency situation for carriers to do exactly the same thing for carriers to have a similar strategy in the approach of deploying capacity into the market. So you're right, Mike. We see a lot of blank say, or at least we saw a lot of blank sailings in the early days of October with Golden Week and stuff. We will see also a continued blank sailings as we move into December. And then most likely, we will see a lot of the, say, capacity being added back in January because I think carriers are also diehard optimists around the the traditional seasonalities. And January is where we often see ocean rates spike again. But I mean, I maybe have said this before, but this time around could be different. I mean, the headwinds facing global consumer demand, but also industrial demand, it's just at, at, at Force 5, or what is it, Gale Force 5 is the term. It's, it's that significant that it may just dent most of the upside from seasonality in 2023, but it's the one to look out for.
1: We heard on the last Lodestar podcast how Electrolux is expecting its container line partners to sensibly renegotiate contracts as these spot rates collapse. Is this something that we're seeing across the board now when you look at your uh, Zenesis contract rate data? And are all carriers being constructive, if that's the right word for this?
4: Uh, not all carriers are equal for sure. Uh, and Animal Farm, if you haven't read it, I guess you do read uh, Animal Farm from time to time, read it again. Because Senator Data, if you dig deep into that, you can certainly see that shippers are enjoying it now. We need... Not only renegotiation, I mean, you may also have heard about it, Mike, that uh, some carriers tried uh, with preemptive strikes, literally offering a reduction of long-term contract rates before the shippers got around asking for it. But I think there will be a second round, if not a third round also in terms of renegotiating. I think most people in the business right now hesitate as much as possible. I mean, hesitation is your friend right now. But of course, there's a flip side to how much you can hesitate because when you have essential cargo that moves on key trade lanes, you cannot just sit around every week and book on the spot market. So you literally have to take away some of that essential capacity and put it into the long-term contract markets. What we see in Sennetta data right now is is a massive gap between the spot and short. Uh, Essentially, it's, it's the last trade standing, the transatlantic westbound from North Europe into U.S. east coast where you still see a spot market being above the long-term contract market, all others see a growing gap between. And coming into uh, to the early days of 2023, uh, you should not be surprised to see a massive dip in the long-term contract markets because we have seen that development in the contract markets where, first of all, you start to uh, fix on shorter tenures. So instead of going multi-year, you go <laughs> multi-month, right? So before you can really get to grip with a new confident market, say strike new long-term multi-year deals perhaps you go very short you go perhaps a quarter two quarters as the market then find its new equilibrium in terms of long-term contract market but you hear it from me also that carriers are desperate making sure that they can avoid having half empty ships sailing that they can avoid uh, Planking sailings every week that they can avoid laying up a million TEUs, perhaps even more, depending on how much retailer damage is done, especially the retailer sector. I think to how bad the year next year will be for for the carriers. But shippers, pay attention to Senator data. That if you are a shipper with a certain amount of volumes, you should definitely push hard to make sure that your volumes get best treatment with the right carriers, and don't be afraid to shove around because now. Now may be the time to forge new long-pending relationships.
1: I did actually uh, reread Animal Farm quite recently. I think for the last two years, so the shipping lines have essentially been Napoleon the pig and, and the shippers have been poor Boxer, the, the working horse, who's a true believer and has been carted off to the slaughterhouse. Who's Boxer now? Is it the container line executives? Is some of them out there wondering when they might be carted off.
4: Poor old Boxer is... Is already butchered now because even those that came out with preemptive strikes will find themselves renegotiating. But what we see right now in terms of the market changes that has been so dramatic that there is no way around it uh, right now. You you simply cannot hold on to the big volumes and the big tickets with the uh, essential customers right now. You need to do something about it. There. So there is. There is potential also some legal uh, disputes to be found around for, for some customers. But in essence, again, carriers need the big volume they need to uh, be able to fill up those ships. And they can only do so if they strike the right deal with the right price. Otherwise, shippers may just not nominate any cargos if, uh, if they can avoid even uh, a dead freight clause into uh, to the contract. So pay attention, as always, to the word and the details in the contract because that's where the devil is.
0: Gavin
1: Van load uh, Loadstar Managing editor he did a, an interesting article on low star premium about how this structural reset in the market obviously rates have collapsed we've gone to a market that reminds him very much of almost like the global financial crisis and his experience of that was that a lot of larger forwarders took advantage during that period because they were the ones who were able to give the carriers what they want which was guaranteed bookings and then they were able to sell that onto to shippers who may, may previously have been using smaller forwarders at at low rates, that was still profitable for them, but the smaller forwarders couldn't get those rates off the container lines. Now, it's slightly more complicated than I've just summarized, but does that make sense to you?
4: I think the freight forwarders definitely also find themselves in a tricky position right now because they need to strike the exact right agreement also going forward with all of the uncertainty of their own ability to book the cargo that they book in terms of space with the carriers. So, so what you just outlined makes absolute sense. Being a freight forwarder right now is also being part of an industry that is seeing margins squeezed right now. Obviously, the margins for carriers is running from very high to very low now, but freight forwarders haven't gone that high. But we have definitely also seen the age of the freight forwarders around. Again, we're hitting like a reset button where they need to I think they need to reinvent themselves in in some way. They need to be sure that they do not only offer what they once did. They need to offer so much more than that because all shippers and BCOs know exactly what they missed out on during COVID years. And if freight forwarders, uh, small or large, cannot deliver extra data, cannot deliver, say, transit times, cannot deliver predictability in terms of when cargo will arrive, then they will also find themselves short of business. I mean, we have seen many years where the number of freight forwarders have diminished. They have definitely lost out, especially on the second half of of the previous decade as they got squeezed. But also, I think going forward, the integrated strategy from more and more carriers will put even more pressure on the low tier of the freight forwarder segment because what is it that they can offer to customers that carriers cannot offer on an online platform with an integrated product. Time will tell if I'm I'm right or wrong on that, but I think we might see some casualties in the freight forwarding sector quite fast.
1: A battle royale for all that cargo. I was having a look at uh, Nomura's leading index of Asia x Japan's aggregate exports, which is not that easy to say, but they call it Nelly the Short. Essentially, that's continuing to plunge, and I'll just give you one stat here just to... Illustrate that point. South Korea's export growth in the first 20 days of November was down minus 16.7% year-on-year from minus 5.5% year-on-year in October, which is quite a big drop. Now, Nomura reckons this export slump is now clearly down to weakening demand. It's not COVID lockdowns or anything like that. It's down to weakening demand, and it's not now about if, but how deep recessions in the US and Europe will be so how is Zenita expecting the global downturn cost of living crisis that is eating into consumer spending power to hit container volumes on those front hall trades out of Asia in 2023
4: well at first let me just address South Korea because I think there's also a trucker strike ongoing now for several weeks that is definitely also dending a bit of the exports out of South Korea and those numbers that you highlight all of a sudden you uh, you may be able to uh, to find some sense In the fact that the South Korean government is now putting out a $2 billion rescue package for their ocean carriers, as ludicrous as that may sound, because boy, do we know that they have failed miserably in supporting and propping up their maritime business in in the past. But getting back to your question there, Mike, we see a potential loss of 2.5% in terms of global volumes. We're not talking about a ton, mile adjusted uh, estimate here, but just the sheer number of boxes being moved on a global scale. We may see it on par with 2022 if the whole cost of living crisis resolves itself super fast. But having said that, it's not really likely to happen as, as we still see inflation going higher in Europe. We still see real estate loans are now being attached with much higher interest rates So I don't know about you, but I can certainly see that the money I would rather spend on imported goods from Asia or from anywhere, that amount of money is is diminishing fast as the mortgage payments go up at the um, higher inflation kind of sticks around. And the geopolitics that in the European context is is very much about Ukraine and Russia right now. We're not moving into a, a beautiful place anytime soon. So we see mostly downside risk to global consumer demand following some crazy COVID years. And I think everyone should um, realize that it's a, it's a reset year, 2023, in terms of consumer demand, even for the American consumers that potentially also holds a bit of the potential upside. We know they are just damn good at consuming goods and that they spend the money they have in their pocket. But if their share of wallet goes up for uh, Commodities like fuel, uh, energy and in in general, and of course, financial costs, and there's fewer money to uh, spend on that. So fingers crossed that we will see the US Fed uh, become successful in bringing and flooring inflation rates as fast as they have been doing for the past couple of months, because that is certainly also a key for not going all the way down to contraction of global volumes by two and a half percent but limiting it perhaps to a minus one or even if all things go, well, around zero.
1: And how does that tally up against the global fleet growth, which we're still looking at even with scrapping of around about 5% fleet growth next year, right? So, I mean, that supply-demand balance is, looking, it's, that's not great for a carrier for starters, is it?
4: No, exactly. And, and, and second in line, we only have the challenge providers uh, that will feel the heat in a year or so when the time charters then expire. Two years ago, they all were about to run out of cash because the market evaporated in front of them. They will most likely feel the same in the next year when the time charters with the main carriers will expire. But indeed, the carriers have all the tools available to them in managing the capacity, but I failed to see them do it as efficiently as they did in the early COVID years. So uh, scrapping, we have uh, estimated up to 200,000 TEUs of scrapping in our base case, even though that should double. As you allude to, it would only bring fleet growth down around 5%. So the gap will be massive in terms of overcapacity in the market. And we do not need to wait until 2024 when it will become worse in terms of fleet growth. And at the same time, we're also seeing a more efficient deployment of ships right now as global congestion also ease. We have seen that quite some time. We have also just recently seen that the line of ships waiting outside Los Angeles and Long Beach is down to zero. And I know there's a bit of methodology in this as there is around the idle fleet also because, I mean, our estimate for next year points to a idle fleet of around a million TU, give and take. Uh, if you go by by Alpha Liner, for instance, uh, they have a, a different measurement right now where they also include the ships being in repair yards for various reasons, which take up half a million. So you should be absolutely aware of uh, when you look at the market, what are these ships actually doing? What kind of capacity is out there? How much is blanked? How much is cold layup? And how much is just, say, carriers offering this new premium product of super slow steaming where you can actually get floating storage on the way for perhaps even just a small premium price? That might come in handy for at least those uh, retailers that see bloated inventories right now and potentially a disappointing Christmas season coming up. So a lot of things boiling in the market, but at the face of it, the headwind from uh, from fleet close seems to be tricky to manage for the carriers. And that should, be, of course, play into uh, to lower freight rates for spot market as well as contracts.
1: Peter, where are you seeing positives in 2023?
4: At the early days of, of November, the Sinetta Summit in, in Hamburg, a customer-only event, had a focus on the green agenda. So for one, I think the climate may benefit from, uh, say, more slow steaming, more uh, idle capacity around in that regard. But, uh, but it may also be a good time for people just to check out their supply chains if they really believe in greening, meaning in the right way. So we're not just paying lip service here, but we're actually doing something about it. You should definitely check out Uh, Sinnetta's carbon emission index because then you can actually make sure that you not only pay the right price in terms of freight, but you're also choosing the carrier that emits the least carbon into the air while performing your transport.
1: Just finally, do you have any advice to shippers as they're looking to 2023, but we're expecting carriers to take some sort of action. What action would that be and how should shippers respond?
4: Well, they all need to be Picky right now. They all need to pay attention to the details. Because obviously, even though we talk about 2023 as like a year of opportunities for shippers, they are, of course, also faced in their home markets with poor demand from customers. So, the one thing that I see as the most important factor for 2023 is the cost of living crisis, slash, how well will consumers handle a tricky 2023 year? And with that confidence from their customers, Shippers should approach, of course, uh, a number of tendering with, their, with the carriers and the big freight forwarders to avoid going too long too soon because it may be just a storm boiling here. And as alluded to also, 2024 is definitely an even worse year in terms of fleet growth for the carriers. So the wise and smart shippers will pay attention to the developments. They will strike when it's uh, it's just right to to do long-term with a selected carrier. But again, the one thing that they should take away from the one key advice here, do not rush. Go on, hesitate, play your cards well. Time will work in favor of you, not against you. So patience, as always, even more so in this market, is required for those shippers and BCOs to strike successful deals in a tricky market and and in a battle where carriers also sit on a war chest which they will uh, make use of if need be, also by being picky also on on the customer side of things and, uh, and the rate perspectives and their key offering from door to door, right? How much can they push shippers into a premium product with more services where they can flex their logistics muscles at a bigger price and, and a lower cost for uh, the full service? So that's the one thing that I will look uh, out for in next year, Mike.
1: Peter Stan, thanks for joining me today on the Lodestar podcast.
4: Always a pleasure.
1: I'd like to thank TAC Index, the Lodestar's air freight data provider, and zenita our sea freight data supplier. Big thanks to my editing team, Karen Ball and Tom Matthews. And a big shout out to OEC's Jason Haith for his marvelous baritone introduction to this podcast. And most of all, gratitude to you all for listening. We'll be back soon.